1: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. We begin with talk about a hot topic other than COVID-19 and the vaccine rollout. The brewing scandals in the Canadian military and what this means for the Trudeau Liberals in Ottawa. First, there were allegations of sexual impropriety against former chief of the defense staff, Jonathan Vance. Then there was more of the same against his replacement, Admiral Art McDonald, which came out just weeks after he took over in another high-profile case. Now the plot is thickening. There are allegations that the officer who brought these allegations forward was threatened anonymously. Also, the defense minister's insistence that he took action as soon as he learned of the allegations is challenged by a former military ombudsman who says he tried to tell Harjit Sajjan a long time ago, but Minister Sajjan put his hands up and didn't want to know the details. The response so far is a major shakeup of the senior ranks, which featured the promotion of Lieutenant General Francis Allen to vice chief of the defense staff, making her the first woman to hold the position. Libby Snymer spoke about the various issues on Tuesday with our strategy panel, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister Charles Souza. Karen Stins, CEO of Variety Village, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road.
2: I think with anything that that affects the military and, and certainly the the government's inapt uh, uh, you know inaptness at, at trying to uh, trying to fix this, or or, or more importantly the cover up, which is usually worse than than, than the situation uh, on on a number of fronts. Uh, I think it, it does it can actually get. The public's attention. I think the silver lining in all this is that they they're able to promote uh, a very strong woman by the name of uh, Frances Allen to to the vice chief of defense staff, and I think that is a silver lining. and And I know that uh, from from some of the statements that I've heard, not only from Erin O'Toole and others, there's a lot of respect and admiration for the work that she's done in the military. So that is a, that is good news. But, you know, I think it speaks to what you were mentioning in the outset, too, Libby, which is the government's vetting process. You know, we saw this with the governor general, we saw this with some other folks, and, and to be able to have two, you know, they got rid of one chief of defense uh, uh, staff, and then they got somebody else coming in. And now, so it just seems to be this pattern of of either just, you know, making quick decisions and, and not thinking things through and not doing the proper vetting or sticking their head in the sand, you know, and, and not wanting to sort of address any potential controversy or, or, or more, more, or worse in some cases, thinking that Canadians won't care you know, that they're sort of above above, above reproach to Liberals and they, they won't have, you know, anything that happens to them won't stick to them. Either case, it's just not good. Uh, it's not good for the military and it's not good for the Prime Minister's uh, uh, perception, quite frankly. And at some point it will trickle to the Canadians and Canadians will take note of this.
3: Karen,
4: as a woman, how do you per- perceive this? Well, you know, I, I agree with what John has, has said. And also, that, you know, it's a... Again, it's just a bit of a head-scratcher because this is so off-brand for the Liberals to think that, you know, something was brought to their attention about potential misconduct, sexual misconduct, and nothing was done. You know, I I think that that is just so counter to everything that Trudeau personally has been advocating for during his tenure as Prime Minister. So the fact that it was taking place and it was brought to the attention of a Cabinet Minister and and yet... Nothing was done to address it, and it was in fact perpetuated because the person who brought forward the and you know and I understand there's more to the story. Of course, there's always more to the story, but you know. But on its face, the government has taken swifter action with less in front of it than actually having an ombudsman say, "I actually do have evidence. I just don't know how to proceed with it." And then to be told, "No, don't uncover it." Personally, I think for me that's one of the most troubling aspects of it.
5: Charles, what's your view? Yeah, there's a lot of soul searching going on here, and uh, issue about. Uh, trying to determine who are the best candidates. I mean, it's a pervasive issue. This happened during the Conservatives when John Vance was appointed. And, of course, now this happened again with Art McDonald. I'm more concerned about guys like Officer Raymond Totter, who is a whistleblower, trying to, in this case with regards to uh, Art McDonald, trying to determine, you know, how is he supposed to report these misconducts that come to him? And how are the victims uh, being treated as a, court, uh, as a result? And this is a bigger issue just beyond the military. It's, it's everywhere. I mean, it's a, in politics, it's in the military, it's in corporates, it's in churches, it's in charities. There's a lot of issues that have to be dis- resolved in the way we tolerate this kind of misconduct and how we then report it to protect the very individuals that are being affected. i got to be encouraged now that Francis Allen has been appointed to this role Maybe we'll have more women involved in the military. There's only about 16 percent to 20% are actually women in the military. This may encourage more to to step up. I mean, we see some in the United States running for president. I mean, we need to encourage and to accept and to provide some degree of safety that these individuals won't be tarnished when they come out and start to highlight some of the misconduct that exists
1: former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister Charles Sousa, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Fight Back's Tuesday Strategy Panel. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. One of the biggest issues underlying the staffing crisis in Ontario's long-term care sector is pay you may not realize there has been some good news for female staff at for-profit nursing homes in Ontario who've won a pay equity fight in the courts. But will that be enough to ensure fairness going forward? Libby asked this of Vicki McKenna, president of the Ontario Nurses Association.
6: This has been, you know, is shocking to many. This has been a 15-year battle that we've had. Uh, in regard to fair and equitable payment for primarily, of course, a female-dominated uh, workforce uh, that works in for-profit long-term care homes. And we partnered with uh, SEIU, the Service Employees uh, International Union, who represents a large bulk of, of workers uh, in the system as well, um, because they were fighting the same battle we were. This is a fight with the uh, for-profit nursing homes, but it's also government. uh, The attorney general is is uh, fighting alongside the employers on this, and has been um, a major challenge in in the issue as well. Nurses who work in
3: long-term care, they don't get paid the same as, say, nurses in hospitals, do they?
6: They do not. But that, that's, that's actually another issue. But <laughs> yes, we don't have equity across the sectors for nurses. And in this sector, in long-term care, where we try to, you know, we have nurses who work in a for-profit home, for instance, and then look across the street at a municipal nursing home and the nurses there make substantively more. And so, you know, this is this is the equity issues that exist in the sector. You know, should, doesn't it doesn't make sense that nurses who work in a long-term care facility um should be making the same amount of money and they're not. One of the things that nurses uh tell me is that, you know, like I really love long-term care. I really want to work there, but I don't want to work in that home because You know, why would I do that? I'm not going to have the same working conditions as if I would work across at the municipal home. We have a problem recruiting nurses into this sector for sure. We need to make sure they're paid fairly and equitably. And it's for all workers. Staffing is a huge problem in long-term care. And it's about recruiting nurses and healthcare professionals, and it's about retaining them. These are some of the situations that occur where we know In other countries as well. It's very similar to that, uh, where, you know, we see these disparities and we see, you know, we worry about migration of workers um, across across the health sector in particular because they need some sense of job security uh, because, you know, they're like everybody else. They have to, you know, put a roof over their head and feed their families and so sometimes the decisions that they make are maybe not the decision where they really fill their niche, where they really want to work, but they have to, or they need to work in a place where they'll be fairly compensated.
3: Um, so what are you hoping, is this going to solve things for you, this decision?
6: <laughs> well, You know, I'm laughing because I don't know if there will be any other appeals uh, by government or these employers, I haven't yet heard that. We'll have to wait and see, they could appeal again, uh, and this could go on longer. Um, it would be good if it was like, okay, haven't we haven't we all spent, seven, hasn't the government, hasn't these employers spent enough money on litigation, and shouldn't we be done in, they could be investing that money in the care of residents in this province? I think that would be a good thing. But even this decision having it come down, we still have a lot of work to do ahead of us, because now... We have to actually enter into the pay equity process, which is doing the job evaluations and gathering the data to make the, uh, to work through the calculations and make sure that we're, we're doing things properly. And we do that with employers. I mean, it's, it's a partnership when you do this, but we haven't even started because we are, have been dealing with the, trying to get this decision through the court.
1: Vicki McKenna, president of the Ontario Nurses Association, in conversation with Libby Snymer about pay equity for female staff in for-profit long-term care homes. I'm Jane Brown and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back, coming up after the break. How big of a concern is queue jumping for a COVID vaccine? We will discuss next.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. How concerned should we be about COVID-19 vaccine Q-jumping in this province? The Ford PCs at Queen's Park have specified a list of health conditions that would be prioritized for the vaccine during phase two of the rollout. People will need to answer a series of questions when booking, but they won't have to prove when they arrive to get their vaccine that they have a pre-existing health condition. Is this a problem? Will people lie and say they have cancer or heart disease when they don't, just to get a vaccine sooner? Libby asked these questions of Dr. Alan Vaisman, infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network, and Dr. Carrie Bowman, a bioethicist at the University of Toronto.
7: I think if we're going in this direction, it's so important that we get the message out there, including this show, that, you know, if anyone attempts to game the system, this is really, really wrong. You're potentially bringing, you know, harm and illness to other people because other people are, have priority for good medical reason. So, you know, I just don't know, Libby, I mean, how many people would be gaming this system? Look, if we had brilliant electronic records like some places in the, in the world do and this <laughs> continent do, we wouldn't have this problem, uh, but we don't. And, um, I, you know, I, I, I rely on the many people I work with. I'm told that if the system's going to stay nimble and efficient, you can't have people lining up with all sorts of papers and documents and pill bottles as to, you know, what their story is. Um, And I'm really hoping a lot of family docs can pick this up, but I realize they can't pick up all of it, meaning no one knows their patients better than the family docs. So it may be, but I think we have to get the message out there. And look, that message will resonate with some people who say, I don't want anything to do with getting in the way of someone that needs it more, and other people don't. And I don't know what those numbers are going to be,
3: Dr. Vaisman. What's your view?
8: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. That if we had a system that was could very quickly assess this kind of thing, would be great. But given the situation we have now, the limitations, it wouldn't be practical for these uh, clinics to go through each patient one by one and ask them to provide proof. That would mean people need to bog down family doctors who are already very busy, uh, or other clinics to get this proof. So, you know, of course, there's going to be some abuse of the system, but Overall, I don't think it's going to be a major issue. I think people are going to get vaccinated within a short few months, any event. So hopefully people can be honest and uh, not take advantage.
3: People have very different views of their own health and the seriousness of what they live with. If you open it up that way and it's self-assessing in addition to people who deliberately jump the queue, there are people who consider themselves worthy. And, And even with a family doctor... Uh, somehow prioritizing it if a patient gets, in, a long-standing patient gets in touch and says, hey, doctor, uh, remember I had that bout of asthma. Uh, I want to get in that line. Do you think they'll deny them?
7: No, I know. That's a really good point because for every single one of us, and I'm sure myself included, our own assessment of our health status is probably a little off, right? We overestimate, we underestimate, we can't see the forest for the trees. But, you know, or or someone's going to say to their doctor, "I had a bout of asthma, and you don't know about it," which is, you know, potentially even fraudulent. I just, I, I so wish we had some sense of what the numbers were going to be like. I'm very hopeful that this will work, but look, I, you know, I did some interviews on this yesterday, and I got some very, very heartfelt emails last night from people saying, "You should see what I'm living with and what my wife is living with and how long it's been." And the thought that anyone can just go into these lines and go ahead of me with any kind of story is just
3: devastating. And they have a point. Dr. Vaseman.
8: Right. Once you get down to a certain level of age, when you start opening it up to people with the comorbidities, then I think uh, you are going to capture a lot of people who would strongly benefit. Uh, so, for example, we're starting off with the 80 or older, then moving down one age group, and then that group with the comorbidities will be allowed to be vaccinated as well. So you're getting into a group of people who may be at higher risk despite being a lower age. So either way, you cut it, even though it's a more objective measure, and I, I agree there's complexity there. Even though it's a more objective measure, you may in fact be doing a lot of benefit for a larger group of people if you start including the people with comorbidities, even, even younger people in their 20s or 30s or 40s. So you're going to have a, some kind of you know, imbalance regardless of which approach you take.
1: Dr. Alon Vaisman, Infectious Disease Specialist at the University Health Network, and Dr. Kerry Bowman, Bioethicist at the University of Toronto. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Now to one of the highlights in the vaccine rollout, a pilot project which has select Ontario pharmacies and doctors administering the AstraZeneca vaccine to people 60 to 64. The doctors involved were supposed to start yesterday, and the pharmacy program officially began Friday. And as usual, our friend, pharmacist John Papasturgio, is ahead of the curve. He's been inoculating people against COVID-19 since Wednesday. Dr. Sohail Gandhi, also a friend of Fight Back, is getting some of the doses for his patients. Both Dr. Gandhi and John Papasturgio joined Libby Snymer for a conversation about the pilot project on Thursday.
9: You know, I was driving to work yesterday and uh, I got a call uh, uh, from our uh, shoppers' door of our corporate office saying they'd landed some vaccine early and the the ministry gave them an okay to start in a store that, uh, you know, is used to doing vaccines and a high volume of them. So we, you know, we got our our shipment in about, you know, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock. And we, uh, since then, we've been going non-stop. Uh, uh, we've been, you know, we've, we've probably do the most uh, flu vaccines uh, in a pharmacy, in the GTA. So uh, my team was ready to go pretty much uh, as soon as the vaccine got there. And uh, it's been quite an interesting environment here. Patients really excited, real positive vibe, almost a, uh, you know, party atmosphere as we're going through them. Uh, we're doing about, Libby, uh, right now, about uh, 50 patients an hour, I would say. Even oh, my more than goodness. That. Yeah, so I think it really highlights the fact that when pharmacy gets going, uh, uh, we could really do a lot of uh, patients quickly. And I think uh, we'll be done 500 doses uh, in the next hour or so here. So we're going to run out here. Good thing is my other three stores on the Danforth are just getting their supplies. So we should be... Uh, well-equipped down here to go uh, throughout the weekend.
3: Uh, You know, it's interesting. I think that uh, the authorities, the provincial authorities, I think they estimated in one of the briefings that they thought that pharmacies on average would do 40 a day. You're doing 50 an hour. That's pretty hefty.
9: Yeah. I mean, you know, that's not representative of every pharmacy for sure. I think it's going to vary depending on the staffing, the size of the pharmacy and everything else. But we are equipped to do vaccination and these type of services here. So we're, yeah, we're well ahead of the curve. And uh, yeah, it uh, it does. I mean, I, I've seen some of the news outlets saying that there's lineups. Of course, we have to maintain the social distancing within the store. So I can't let everyone into the store at once. Uh, it would be, we, we have our shoppers here and everything else. So we are queuing the patients outside. And uh, as uh, their turn comes up, they're coming into the store. So You're seeing some of these uh, uh, lineups on on the news. That really is because we want to protect the safety of all our patrons and our staff within within the business.
3: Okay, and well, it's a nice day today. Dr. Gandhi, so uh, you're in Georgian Bay, yep. and uh, you're not getting a huge amount of doses. Um, there, there are 50 doctors participating, is that right?
10: Yeah, so our, our team uh, encompasses 50 doctors, and for 50 doctors, we got uh, 400 doses, which we will, uh, our clinic is running tomorrow. We've been we we're fortunate enough that we were able to work together and set up a drive-through clinic for uh, patient safety. So this is probably the safest way of administering a uh, COVID vaccine, and uh, they're all booked for tomorrow. and And I, I anticipate that all four hundred will happen uh, tomorrow.
3: And so, did you you contacted your patients, right?
10: Yeah, so uh, we're fortunate because your family physician, of course, has all your uh, demographic information. And as you know, the National uh, Advisory uh, Council on Immunizations has mandated that for the first go-around, only patients from age 60 to 64 without any health conditions are allowed to have the, the vaccine. So uh, we were able to sort that out because we've got all the information on patients and make sure that uh, only those who are appropriate to have the vaccine at, uh, for this week were able to get it.
3: Dr. Gandhi, what would you like to leave us with?
10: So I, I just ask for a little bit of patience. I mean, I know there's a lot of uh, people who want this vaccine. Um, I think that if we can just be a little bit patient, uh, more shipments are coming next week and the week after, and we will get through this.
9: John? Yeah, yeah, same thing. I mean, it's going to be a busy few days. Please remember, we're only doing this for a very specific age group. If you fall out of that age group, don't come to the pharmacy. Don't call asking to get vaccinated. It is uh, really uh, bogging down our phone lines. But other than that, everyone's been quite patient, quite happy. and It's been a very interesting experience. So thanks for having me on, Lovit
1: pharmacist John Papasturgio and Dr. Sohail Gandhi, family physician and past president of the Ontario Medical Association. I'm Jane Brown and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back knockout call of the week.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown.
1: Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Dave in Brampton phoned to talk about his experience with booking a COVID-19 vaccine.
11: My son-in-law went online to, do, uh, to get me the vaccine. He had no problem. And then my, I told my neighbor about this, and he got his daughter to try and get the, him and his wife on. They will not accept two people with this one email. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, which is stupid. I mean, she could have done both of them, and they don't accept it. They only will let, allow you to do one.
1: Pat in St. Catharines phoned on International Women's Day with her thoughts.
4: Women should remember that um, we, didn't, we didn't even get vote till 1918, when the suffrage, the people had to protest to get the vote. So, And that's not that
1: long ago. Marlene in Scarborough called with a question about new residents in long-term care. My concern is with long-term care.
11: Uh, We know it's fluid. By that, I mean that when somebody dies in a long-term care bed, there's at least 10 people on a waiting list waiting for that bed. When that happens, and I'm sure there's been some, some changes made to admittance because of COVID, but those people... That are coming into the facility have, in most cases, not had their shot. What is the plan for those people? Are they going to be visited and given the shot, or are they going to fall through the cracks? And now, Fight Back's
0: Knockout Call of the Week.
1: There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Walter in Hamilton who phoned and voiced the frustration many are feeling about the COVID vaccine rollout. It seems to me that we in
11: our 70s are shoved constantly back and further back uh, at the end of the queue. And The first thing I know, when am I going to get my shot? And what's even worse is that they got this thing on the computer, and I'm not a computer guy. On top of that, how am I going to find out when I'm going to get my shot? Because this province is always playing around, always changing the uh, priority thing or order. Why don't they simplify things and they do like the other country that succeed? You start with the 90s, 80s, 70s, 60s, and you work your way down and stop uh, taking different people for different excuse and wedge them ahead of the queue well some of us are shoved back and uh, we're really uh, literally ignored as if we don't even exist those of us in our six uh, 70s
1: that does it for this week's best to fight back on zoomer radio if you'd like to qualify for the fight back knockout call of the week phone us noon to one weekdays or if you have a comment email us at fightback at zoomer.ca follow us on Twitter at fightback libby. And call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back.
0: The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi. With technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.